0: So, me Sasha, if someone talks to me about summer reading or even like reading in bed, nighttime reading, honestly, my brain first always goes to fiction novels. Like I love them. And one thing I've been noticing lately is that they're if I think if they're written particularly well, I wind up learning a whole lot about humanity or like things that change my perspective or have me go like, oh, I didn't realize that this stuff could happen. And so I think the book that we're highlighting for you listeners today is just one of those phenomenal book experiences.
1: Right, because we're so excited to bring to you a book set in the era just after World War II ends and the incarceration of Japanese Americans on American soil. Because you know, so many books talk about the experiences in those camps, but we've seen very few opportunities for us to all learn about what it was like for people to return to society, to be released with very few possessions, and no real home to return to. So Naomi Hirahara dives into this period of history and actually the period right before World War II ends in her book, Clark and Division. And then that period immediately after the war, its sequel, which we're focusing on today called Evergreen. We highly recommend both of these books and please let us know what you think.
0: Welcome to the Dear Wet Women podcast, the show that helps model and normalize conversations around race and racism so that we can help more white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are particularly excited as biracial Japanese and white hosts to bring you this conversation. We are Sarah and me, Sasha.
2: My name is Naomi Hirohara, and I'm a mystery author as well as a nonfiction writer.
1: All right, so before we start, I'm just gonna have a little fangirl moment here as after I read Clark and Division, which was recommended to me by someone that I trust, I spent half of our own book tour telling all the bookstores about how great it was. And then I read all of your other books as well, And so I went down a deep Naomi Hirahara-like world, which was fantastic. And so I am therefore so excited to speak with you about Evergreen. To kick things off, can you tell us a little bit about Evergreen? And since it's a sequel, maybe a little bit about Clark and Division as well.
2: Sure. Clark and Division is set in 1944 Chicago, and it follows the Ito family from Los Angeles in this community called Tropical. And during World War II, they're sent to Mansonar. And it's really a story, that particular book is a story about sisterhood and two sisters. And it's told from the younger sister Aki's point of view. And the shining star of the family is Rose and she's the one who goes first to Chicago and then Aki and her parents follow only to discover something horrible has happened to Rose so now it's up to the younger sister Aki to you know find get justice for her sister as well as carry her parents her immigrant parents through this very chaotic part of their lives and also Japanese American history right Clark and Division is the intersection in Chicago, Evergreen. For Los Angelinos who should know, Evergreen should evoke this major street in Oil Heights, which is kind of the gateway to Los Angeles for a lot of newcomers, not only uh, Latinos, but Japanese and, quote, right Russians and a lot of actually Jews. So that is the place that Aki and her parents land next in 1946. And so, yeah, they're kind of bookends of a very, I think, important part of Japanese American history that's not really examined. We on the West Coast, we've heard a lot about the 10, you know, incarceration camps and the forced removal. You know, other parts of the country may not be as familiar with all the details. But I think what surprised people about Clark and Division was that it was set in the Midwest. So this is definitely an American story. And it's, it is also a Midwestern story. And but now I'm kind of bringing it back to Los Angeles. And the Los Angeles that Aki had known is not quite the same. And I think when people, you know, hear about the incarceration story, they said, Oh, And then after the war, they were released, you know, and then they, you know, were able to work hard and make it. You know, I think that's the story that people kind of you don't even think about it. Right. But I think especially now for us coming out of the pandemic. Right. That was like two, three years, very, you know, stark time for some you know, we're kind of crawling out of this whole experience. So I think there could be more like links, you know, we can have more empathy to perhaps what these people had gone through too in the 1940s.
1: Well, thank you so much, first of all, for sort of setting the scene. And I'm so excited because I think we have like 10 different questions and different ways to go from what you just said. But I want to start with what you said about, and talking about a part of history that people may not be familiar with. Because when I was reading Evergreen, having grown up in Pasadena and spending every Saturday with my Japanese immigrant father in little Tokyo, knowing the Ise gardeners, some Japanese gardeners, and this world from, you know, a 1980s and 1990s lens, this book was really powerful for me because I saw so much of what I had learned growing up in that community, you know, represented in this book, just, you know, earlier but i know that for people not growing up in this area or without understanding this historical lens you know the a lot of what you talk about in the book may be harder to understand and so how do you really work on drawing the reader in especially when as you were mentioning you're talking about things like the japanese american incarceration or the 442nd or the racial tensions in los angeles during that post war period
2: well i think it helps to see it from, you know, a 20-something, you know, woman's point of view. I think Aki, she's very relatable. She's not a Wonder Woman. I mean, I think she has a lot of strength inside of her, but she is kind of an average ordinary person in some ways. She's just gotten married. You know, she's a newlywed to a young man she doesn't really know well. There's a larger social story that I'm trying to tell, but I'm also trying to tell a very human story. So you have a newlywed, and then her spouse comes back from war, and he's quite not the same art that she had known, you know, before he had gone. I'm hoping that people can be open to Aki's story, and it probably helps if you've read and Division, so you have some idea of the kind of very middle-class life that she and her family led before the war. And here now they're living in a more working class neighborhood. Her, you know, father's struggling. Her mother's a domestic worker. So, just that kind of those adjustments, those transitions that this family and this young woman have to make. Also, looking at Boyle Heights is right next to Little Tokyo, which was which continues to be a large center for cultural and social activities for Japanese Americans. And during the war. Of course, all these people were kicked out and it's empty. And then at the same time, you have a large number of African-Americans from the Deep South coming in because they're recruited to work in the defense industry. But there's these racial covenants, the same racial covenants that had limited where Japanese Americans could live. And, you know, it's like people are saying, well, come to L.A. and work here, but we don't have a place for you to live. But then the government the authorities are pointing to little Tokyo. Oh, but you know, there's this area that's vacated and empty. Why don't you all live there? So I think there's certainly definitely certain intersections of kind of the black migrant story, as well as like this, the Japanese American exclusion and removal story. And I I just found that so fascinating. And it is a really important part of our national history.
0: I appreciate you sharing that. Because I think you're right. I mean, when Misasha and I showed up at Harvard as freshmen, we remember talking to people about the Japanese-American incarceration, and people there had no idea that had even happened. And so I was curious, especially in this day where there are so many types of books being banned, so much history not being taught accurately about the history of our country. You said in the opening that you also write nonfiction. you know, why was it important for you to write these stories in a historical, fictional sort of setting?
2: Well, you know, there's certain things. The Japanese-American community has done a good job. You know, we have a national museum in Los Angeles to kind of collect oral histories. Um, unfortunately, that population's pretty much gone now. You know, the ones who really, who would have been like young adults, you know, during World War II, they're pretty much gone. And I think the people that were interviewed for oral histories, A lot of them were respectable people. They were family people. But we kind of lost the stories of like kind of the black sheep or the folks who got into trouble. And those things were recorded in a report that I had come across from this Chicago resettlers group that were talking about all the juvenile delinquency that they were seeing. There were 400 Japanese Americans in Chicago before World War II. And then after World War II, there were about 20,000. And That to me pointed to the humanity like, of course, if you're a young person ripped from your home and then stuck in a, you know, behind barbed wire in swampland or desert and then plopped without your parents in the middle of Chicago, you know, what are you going to do? You know, you're going to party and you're going and some people are going to get in trouble. So that to me is like our humanity right there. And there's so much about the model minority myth, you know, like all these Japanese Americans, they're so, you know, patriotic and they're so clean. And the reality is that, uh, you know, we're human and some people got into trouble. And I just felt that a mystery novel actually would be the best vehicle to kind of tell the story because it's actually true. But I had to kind of connect the dots because we don't, unfortunately, we don't have people to testify you know, to fill in the gaps of just the statistics. And so, you know, so it just worked out that way. And I think with Evergreen was kind of interesting. I was just thinking about that today, that in some ways, that book is more autobiographical, because so many different parts of me are kind of sewn in that book. And I'm also from Los Angeles, whereas I'm not, I hadn't spent that much time in Chicago before I decided to write about it. And so I'm kind of pulling from different, you know, historic events that kind of I witnessed. I was a part of, and it just manifested itself into Evergreen. So the process, the writing process was a little different for both books.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more about that, whether it's personal stories or experiences that you've had that shaped the story or, you know, things that you discovered about yourself, putting together the historic narrative and understanding the actual experiences that you went through growing up?
2: So Aki is a a little neurotic, (laughs) unsure of herself, and she underestimates herself. She gets envious and jealous. And I was like that when I was in my 20s. So some of that is just remembering, you know, why was I so neurotic? Why did I feel like less so lessers then. So some of it is just very personal. But then I worked at that newspaper, the Ralph Shimpo, that's where Aki's husband ends up getting the job. I put real people that I knew, they're long gone, but I put them as characters in the book. And I think also there's an important thread of the story is post-traumatic stress from war, you know, and I think some of that is what I sense from my own. My parents are atomic bomb survivors. They were in Hiroshima when the bomb was dropped. So it's a different kind. They weren't fighting for America. It was a different kind of wartime experience. But I think the trauma that they've both experienced, i kind of witnessed, you know, over my lifetime, my father in law did fight for the 10442. And he had been wounded. And I was their motto is like, go for broke, you know, like, just go for it. So when he was alive, I would give my father in law all these books about, you know, the 442nd, because I thought it was a point of pride. And he finally stopped me. And he said, it's not nice you know? And I, I was going, what? What have I done? And he was on the front lines. So it was very different. And he was wounded. So it was a very different experience for him. So I think a lot of those things were like seeds. And it's another thing, it's not discussed. It's kind of like the kind of crimes that Nisei, especially women, had gone through during World War II in Clark and Division. In Evergreen, I wanted to kind of, put a spotlight on, you know, we talk about the heroism, which is definitely there, but there was a cost, you know. And I don't think we really talk about it. And I spoke informally with friends who worked with Nise Vets. And they did tell me that they heard these stories of post-traumatic of sleepless nights or weird sleeping habits, you know, or the spouses kind of said what their husbands were going through. And I, this is something I haven't seen in in a book. And maybe to write it as nonfiction is hard because people don't want to go there. They've already you know gone through trauma. They don't want to re-traumatize themselves, right, to say what they experienced after combat. But I go, well, maybe this is the place to kind of revisit and look at this.
0: I really appreciate you having done that and to infuse all of these Human experiences, whether it is PTSD or the difficulties in young marriage or businesses and making money and so many making ends meet, that sort of thing. Because I still remember the scene where I think it was the young Aki like walked into a bank and found a family of Black people like in this decrepit building and being like, wow the character comes to this realization that oh i didn't realize that people were coming into the city and didn't have any place to live even though they were here ostensibly to work and so it was there were so many moments of aha throughout the character's story that i experienced just reading the novel as well that i really really appreciated what do you think about where we are as a society right now in terms of representation in the media and sharing these human stories through, for example, the Japanese American narrative we have today, or just in terms of the narratives we're centered on in our stories that we're telling and reading and sharing with each other. And I ask also because I just finished reading two back-to-back novels earlier this year that featured biracial Asian characters for the first time in my life. And I was like, I feel so seen. You know, I keep having these moments, but
2: where are we? I think it's complicated to tell you honestly. I mean, my first novel was published maybe 19 years ago. So it would be 20 years next year. So and when that came out in 2004, you know, I felt very alone, you know, especially in genre. I think literary fiction has always been a a little more advanced and they haven't been embracing more voices. But I think genre like romance and even sci-fi, mystery, they were kind of late to the game. But now, you know, you see it in all its glory, right? And I think what's helpful for my personal journey as a writer is that I kind of started writing for Japanese Americans at Ralph Schimpel. And some at that time, people are going, what are you're wasting? your? You know, I went to Stanford, you're wasting your education, you need to write for the LA Times and mainstream and you know, and it's important to get our voices out to larger readership and audience. But I guess, you know, my trajectory is, it's really been grassroots, and very close, you know, so I've been just in the trenches. And as for me as a writer, too, I started off being a paperback original writer. In fact, probably Clark and Division is my first kind of hardcover, release. Clark and Division really has introduced my work to a wider audience. And then they're kind of going back. So, you know, what's wonderful? It's like, we don't have to be the only voice. You know, it's before, oh, you're representing all of Asian America, which is ridiculous, right? Because Asian America is so diverse. And then you add on Pacific Islanders, you know, a totally different experience. And now we are hearing, you know, more specific stories from different you know watershed time periods or just contemporary ones which is so wonderful and i think so now people can kind of go deep in one particular specific experience rather than thinking well i'm going to have to interpret you know our whole pan asian history for you know the wider audience so that i think is really wonderful i'm a former journalist so I have to admit, there's one skeptical side to me, because I just know how hard you two have published. It's very difficult. This chosen path is not, as my friend said, writing ain't for sissies, you know, it's and to cultivate an audience, you know, and I'm kind of happy that there hasn't been a high profile, you know, like, club or something that has anointed me, you know, pretty much it's been like sleeping on my friends couches and just struggling and going to bookstore to bookstore, one contact to one contact. And that's how I've been able to build my audience. But I think when you do it that way, in some ways, it's more stable, because, you know, it's like, okay, if I don't get that high profile review, it's okay, because I know I'm scrappy. And I know, what I need to do, you know. But yeah, so we'll just see. I just hope that we could break through. I mean, I was just watching American Born Chinese, yeah, and, which is from a wonderful graphic novel. But Michelle Yao's in there again. It's like, I love her, but it's like there has to be more opportunities for other, you know, actors. You know, is it a type of thing like we only get like one person or two people? And that's kind of how Hollywood works because everything's so, you know, dependent on a big name. Right. And if there's one or two people that break out, you know, we're kind of on their coattails. But I really hope that, you know, Hollywood could be a little more diverse. And we don't have to only tell like one story about like crazy, you know, Asians, (laughs) crazy rich Asians, but more nuanced stories and have younger actors, you know, have more opportunities. So we'll see.
1: I think that's such an important point because I do agree that there are more than five Asian actors. And although we tend to see the same five Asian actors, and I keep thinking about that meme that says if Beyonce can find 24 Black trombonists, right, you can for sure find more than, you know, five Asian actors. So I'm hopeful too that this, there is an expansion for so many reasons, right? Especially when we think about how big Asia is, and all of those identities that we might be referring to, right, when we say Asian. So I really appreciate that you were also sharing about sort of how we are able to go deep into certain topics now, because it's not just, it doesn't have to be, and hopefully it will continue not to be one voice representing, you know, all of Asia. And I'm like heavily air quoting that. So I thank you for all of that. I want to go back to Evergreen for a second, because you two were talking about sort of those aha moments. And in the book, I remember reading the part where there was this discussion of a new area for Black people or called Compton, right? And even having grown up in Los Angeles and knowing the history, there were some parts of the post-war discussion around racial groups and around the post-incarceration experience for Japanese Americans. That was surprising to me. So I'm curious, as you were researching and writing Evergreen, what, if anything, was the most surprising to you?
2: Hmm. I think I knew about the jazz clubs that were in um, Little Tokyo. Basically, what happened was the Black defense workers that lived in Little Tokyo, they had different shifts. So basically, people were working 24, you know, different shifts and coming home. Maybe they had graveyard and they would come home in the morning. And they would call in breakfast clubs and they they would listen to jazz while eating pancakes or whatever. So I was somewhat familiar with that phenomenon. But I was I didn't know that a lot of jazz. One that I mentioned is a finale club. And they hosted like Miles Davis and um, Charlie Parker. And it was the Nisei that were actually going to some of these you know, musical performances, which I thought was so interesting. So there was some level of intersection between the groups. What was interesting was actually there wasn't that much conflict when the Japanese Americans returned. I think one was because a lot of these folks were from the South. They were not from Los Angeles. They were probably more disenfranchised. They didn't have as much roots in that area. So they just moved on to other parts in Los Angeles. And we actually need more of a history about these people as well, that diaspora, which people, we don't really have that much. So I thought those kind of interactions were really fascinating. And because the Japanese were the agricultural leaders in Southern California, not only flower growing, but vegetable growing, so many things, fishing, And I did a book on the flower market and there were like, it was like these hills where they grew lupine and those kind of things that eventually became Compton, you know. So areas that we just view and assume as being just, you know, black and brown areas, you know, the Japanese, they, if you do look at the layers of history, you can see that as well. I do think another thing, because I did do a a deeper dive into the transitional housing for Japanese Americans. And in Burbank, you know, like right across from the Bob Hope Airport was one of the trailer parks that Japanese Americans lived in. And these were the poorest of the poor. These were folks who had a lot of kids or were older and really had no place to go after they were released from camp you know, some people stayed in these camps until like November 1945, and the war had ended in August. And the main reason why is they didn't own land, there were alien land laws, you know, they couldn't stay. I mean, what was there for them in places like Arkansas and Wyoming, right? So they came back to their home, which is Los Angeles, but Everybody wanted a place to live. There are all these GIs, you know, there was a housing crisis. So just the poor conditions in those trailer parks were really heartbreaking. And I was just thinking of these young kids, you know, and actually someone at my um, newspaper had even written an essay about like, you know, they would have these young boys like fight each other, you know, and bet on them. And I integrated scenes like that into the book.
1: I appreciate that. And that was the trailer park. And all of that story of poverty is not one that I was familiar with either at that level. And so I really appreciate that because I think to your earlier point about the assumption that the Japanese Americans came back from camp, the internment, incarceration camps, and just suddenly like resumed life as normal, right? sort of belies the whole struggle that happened, you know, through the discussion of Roy and the business and, you know, trying to fight, to decide to fight to get your business back or not. Where do you live? The PTSD, so many, and the the hospital interaction, I thought with Aki, you know, working between the Japanese hospital and and trying to, you know, sort of find those ties as well was really, really interesting. So it was so eye-opening for me, Even having known so much of that history, I can't wait for others to read it as well. And so I want to ask, because when this episode airs, you'll probably be like kicking off your book tour for Evergreen. So can you tell us a little bit about some dates if you have those at hand and, and where you'll be?
2: Sure. I mean, I will be having my book lunch in my hometown of Romans, in Pasadena Romans. That's going to be on August 2nd. I'm really excited because we just nailed down. I'm sure you're familiar with You and Me bookstore in New York City. It's run by an Asian American woman. And you is why you, which is her last name. So we're going to be having that on Friday, August 4th. And my cousin, well, I guess it's my second cousin. Anyway, his last name is Hirahara. <laughs> he's Art Hirahara. And he's a notable jazz musician, jazz pianist. He's going to be bringing his keyboard and playing some of those music from that era. So I'm so excited about that. And I'll be going to other parts of the East Coast, as well as Chicago. I have to stop by Chicago. Because when Clark and Division came out, I really couldn't do any live events. So that's going to be nice. And then on September 9th at the Japanese American National Museum, prior to our my event there, and I'm going to be showing photos of like these scenes, like the trailer park and other scenes at that location, I'm going to organize like a walking tour of some of the spots that are mentioned. And um, Soho is really great because they do a, a map you know, in the front of the book. So we'll be visiting one of those places. And I'm planning to also do a tour of locations in Boyle Heights. So those are kind of some of the highlights. And yeah, so I'm really excited about them.
0: That sounds super fun. I like all of those. And I, I want to thank you again because especially as the daughter of a Japanese immigrant and growing up on the East Coast, it's not the same experience that, Misasha, you had growing up on the West Coast and understanding the return from incarceration experience. hope more people read it when it comes out. Is there anything about this book, about your work, about you that we didn't ask that you want to make sure our listeners know?
2: Well, I've written some books with mixed characters. Murder on Bamboo Lane. It's interesting because I wrote this book. It's about a mixed, a biracial bicycle cop. She's in her early 20s. I tend to like to write either very old characters or very young characters. And her beat is downtown LA. Yeah, it's some people will say, I will never read anything I've written before. I love reading what I've written. And I love hearing certain readers. And this Catherine Ho, who does the narration is really wonderful. So Yeah, that's fun. And then I have two of a Kauai-based mystery. And in that, the Lenani Santiago is Japanese, Filipina and white. That's awesome. Thank you so much.
1: So I'm also excited because you talked about your August 2nd event in Bromans and that was the bookstore that I grew up going to and like trying and losing myself in the shelves. So I'm very excited that that is your home bookstore too to kick off your whole evergreen book tour. And speaking of books, thank you for those recommendations. And where can our listeners find out more about you and your books?
2: You could just go to my website, com. And I'm active the most in terms of social media on my actually Facebook author page, which is Naomi Hirahara Books. So you're welcome to join me there or subscribe to my newsletter from my website.
1: Amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it and enjoyed talking to you.
2: You've just listened to
0: the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the
2: list.